Hello everyone. Okay, so here's a question for you all. How good is your visual memory? So let's say you're walking down the street, somebody you've never met before says hello. After the event, would you be able to recall some of their features? Like potentially, you, you, you might be able to recall whether it was a, I know just as an example, someone quite small, maybe a tall person you might recognize, maybe hair color, even hair length or style. But would you know if they had dimples or freckles? Or would you have noted the eye colour? Probably not. Maybe, but unlikely. In this podcast, what I'd like to talk about is eyewitness testimony. So we're looking at a bit of a, a forensic-themed podcast. I'd like to talk specifically about facial identification. So I want to look at eyewitnesses, e-fits and where they fit into the picture, and then moving forward, what we have sort of in our present day, which is biometric technology. I'm not going to talk too much about... Um, forensic anthropology and more specifically like facial reconstruction. So let's talk about eyewitness accounts. Now there's no questioning they are a useful tool in any investigation where we need to analyze a crime scene but they are incredibly unreliable. In addition eyewitness identifications right or wrong can have a huge influence on the outcome of any investigation or trial. Did you know, for example, people are likely to view the same scene in different ways depending on a whole load of factors including their position, so where they physically are in that scene, their line of sight, even familiarity with the area comes into play and there's other factors that can interfere with a person's ability to remember specific details. So here's another question for you. Have you heard of the bunny effect? Okay, if not, I'll fill you in. So there uh, were Pickerel and Loftus, two psychologists, did a study where they, they took a sample of people who had been to Disneyland and they showed them a fake advertisement where Bugs Bunny featured. And in talking to these volunteers, they would suggest that they met, did a sort of meet and greet with Bugs Bunny. And were like, oh my God, do you, do you remember? Was it amazing? Do you, do you remember talking to Bugs Bunny? And you maybe had some photos. And they found that all these respondents were saying, yeah, yeah, they, they were able to recall having like a great time with Bugs Bunny. But the only issue is that uh, the character Bugs Bunny belongs to Warner Brothers and not Disney. So it would never have featured yet there. He would never have been anywhere near Disneyland. Except these people were almost like made to, to say that they had seen him and met him, had pictures with him. So these psychologists were able to implant this almost false memory in these people's minds. And if it was so easy to do that, then it begs the question, how valid is eyewitness testimony? If clearly people can be subject to manipulation so easy. There was a study in 2003 by Wells and Olson. And what they said in their study was that eyewitness misidentification is the single greatest cause of wrongful convictions nationwide which I think is staggering. Would you have guessed that it plays a role in more than 75% of convictions overturned through DNA testing? And yet the criminal justice system profoundly relies on eyewitness identification and testimony for investigating and prosecuting crimes. 75% of convictions overturned through DNA testing have been as a result of eyewitness misidentification. 
So what factors actually affect a person's memory and their ability to identify a given suspect? Well, let's think through what are called witness factors. So I'll go through each one. Age, firstly. Studies have shown that when a lineup contains the, the specific culprit, both young children and elderly perform well. But when the lineup doesn't contain the culprit, there's a higher rate of mistaken identifications. Race, or more specifically, the cross-race effect, or CRE as it's known. It's a phenomenon in which people are better at recognising faces of their own race rather than those of other races. Drug use. Altering a person's ability to recall the events of a crime even after they're no longer under the influence. So age, race and drug use are very substantial uh, witness factors. But then you need to consider other witnesses, investigators and or the media and the impact of the media. Especially if you if you imagine if the media is portraying uh, a potential suspect or you, you're hearing about eyewitness accounts on I know, television or you're seeing it in the newspaper. Would that affect your kind of perception, potentially? Now, there are six key crime scene and suspect factors to consider in this too. And number one is the level of trauma. So, for example, was there a weapon used? I might sound a bit odd, but if with high levels of trauma, and if you think about if it were weapons, for example, your, your senses may be heightened because of the situation. Maybe you're that little bit more alert. Maybe you're able to pick up on things that little bit more. But level of trauma has been identified as a key crime scene and suspect factor in eyewitness identification. Also, eye contact. How long have you had that eye contact for? Was it direct? So if you were able to, to physically see a situation or a particular suspect in the act even, eye contact and the length of time and whether it was direct or not comes into play. Visible piercings or tattoos. Obviously, we know that they're incredibly distinctive. That would certainly help with an eyewitness identification. Time of day. Because time of day could also, if you consider time of day, there's a bit of an interplay between that and weather maybe, potentially also the lighting. And also location or familiarity. In an unknown area, would you be more alert or less alert? I would argue that if you're more familiar with an area, you know what is normal. You know what you could say to expect, for example. So maybe the unexpected or things look a little bit more out of place. You'd be uh, a little bit more acutely aware of them. And the sixth one that uh, studies have shown to truly affect eyewitness testimony is the level of attractiveness of the people. So when I go back to the original question, when I said if uh, someone walked past you in the street and said hello, it's been suggested that if they were more attractive, you are more likely to remember them. That's something to think about. So let's think about the facial composite that you can create from this kind of testimony that you get from a witness. So investigators work with sketch artists and eyewitnesses to create what are called facial composites or sketches of a person's face. Today, many police departments are using facial reconstruction software to help them with that task. The composite may be used just internally to assist the officers in identifying an actual suspect, or externally, 
through things like local media, radio, TV, newspaper, to solicit leads. There's a program that you may be aware of. It's called Faces. It's a software program that offers hundreds of different options to help you recreate a person's facial features. I know there's you can go on the internet now and there's so many apps that do this kind of thing and can mock up faces, but this is there are professional pieces of software out there that can truly cater for all different variants of beard style, eyebrow style, hair length, colour, etc. So you can actually create a quite in-depth and quite accurate facial composite. But to do so, you'd need to pay close attention to particular features. So if we take the face, you're talking about the shape of the face, the shape of the jaw, eyes, shape of the nose, neck, width of the neck, ears, shape of protrusion, so not just the presence of ears clearly, but the shape or protrusion of the ears. Do they have facial piercings? Do they have facial hair? And if so, what colour it is? What kind of location? There's so many styles nowadays, so that's really crucial. Do they have any facial markings? So scars, tattoos, do you notice maybe an indicator of age, any forehead or other facial lines? Also, are they just simply wearing eyeglasses or sunglasses? Have they got something distinctive or are they wearing something that maybe have might have masked the particular feature? And then if you take the hair as a, as a really crucial feature to identify length, colour, texture maybe to some extent. So you might think listening to me now that it seems quite easy to maybe recall some of this especially if you think people have quite distinctive faces. But if I asked you now to try and, uh, just as an example, if you're next to a person, try and describe the Queen's face to somebody. It would be quite difficult, I think, because I think you would know, you would be able to visualise that face. You know what she looks like, but to be able to describe that accurately to somebody without giving any kind of clues to her role, I don't know, I I think that would be pretty challenging. So let's talk about EFITs and where these come in. So EFIT stands for Electronic Facial Identification Technique. It's a computer-based method of producing these facial composites of wanted criminals. And it's ultimately based on eyewitness description. So they're only as good as the description that you kind of feed into it. The system itself first appeared in the late, around about 1980s. But now customers for this system exist in over 30 countries around the world. I mean, uh, that includes New Scotland Yard, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms, known as the ATF. Uh, Let's go a little more global. New York Police Department, Stockholm Police, Royal Canadian Mountain Police, RCMP. So a good number of organisations make use of this electronic facial identification technique. Now the EFIT, there truly are some incredible EFITs out there. Equally, there are truly some terrible ones but it is very difficult if i think about an example of a, of a case that as a teacher i've taught about in a forensic club session that i've run it's that uh of richard ramirez and his police efit was based on this description so i'll read you the description and then you try and imagine what kind of image you would potentially draw from this so witness accounts had the following details so male caucasian possibly light-skinned Age 25 to 35, around about 6 foot to 6 foot 2, 150 pounds, thin in appearance. Hairstyle, variable, might be kind of curly, slightly parted. Okay, that all sounds quite normal. And yet, then witnesses reported 
that he had a ghoulish complexion, foul-smelling breath, and sunken cheeks and eyes that looked dark. Now that's quite that's quite an account for well, it's a very descriptive account, but if you're trying to draw a picture based on that, you can imagine it's quite difficult if you're going solely on witness testimony. But as it happens, uh, artist F.G. Ponce on August 26th in 1985 put together an e-fit at the time he's working for the Los Angeles Police Department put together an e-fit for Richard Ramirez and it caught him Richard Ramirez was known as the Night Stalker he's an American serial killer rapist and burglar um, I mean his highly publicised home invasion crime spree which it was terrorised the residents of LA San Francisco I think it was from 1984 through to August 1985 and he used a whole load of weapons handguns knives machetes a tire iron I think at one at one point um and then obviously was sentenced to death I think he had 13 uh death sentences I think were passed by the judge so an efit even though that description is a little bit random in parts actually can be effective and caught in a truly horrendous a perpetrator of crime. There's uh, a famous artist called Mrs. Gibson who holds the Guinness World Record for being the world's most successful police sketch artist. She alone has helped solve well over a thousand crimes in a career that spanned over 30 years. Um, her picture, I mean, if you, if you look these up on uh, on the internet, incredible. Donna Wilson, accused of kidnapping a newborn baby in 1995, the, the the picture that she drew, based on the descriptions, the e-fit that was created, truly is staggering. Rapist Donald Eugene Dutton, after he escaped from prison in 1991, equally incredible. Uh, or Francisco Cardenas, who is currently serving a life uh, sentence in prison after seen murdering a police officer. I mean, remarkable the level of detail in the hair and the moustache and the little goatee that uh he had at the, that particular time so efits really are useful when the description is valid i guess but let's think about biometrics because biometrics is really the the future you would argue biometrics is where things are moving to and i'm guessing you're listening to this podcast maybe on some kind of device and that device right now will probably use biometric you might have even used some biometric facial identification to get into the device to be able to listen to this podcast so biometric it's a unique measurable characteristic of a human that's how we define it and it's used to automatically recognize an individual or just simply verify an individual's identity and you can use it to measure now this is quite a little bit more technical than people realize you can measure both physiological and behavioral characteristics so the physiological biometrics is based on measurements and data derived from direct measurements of a part of the human body so we're thinking like finger scans hand scans facial recognition which a lot of phones have nowadays iris or even retina scanning whereas the behavioral biometrics is based on measurements and data derived from like an action so voice command voice activated keystroke or signature scans so a little bit of history into biometrics if i take you back to uh let's go to the 1960s let's go that far back so that was when the first semi-automated system kind of 
came in for, for facial recognition to locate just the features so eyes, ears, nose and mouth. Very simple automated system to recognize those features on photographs, on images. Skip ahead 10 years to the 70s and there we have Goldstein and Harmon and they used very specifically 21 subjective markers, so things like hair colour, lip thickness, to automate the recognition. It wasn't until roughly about 18 to 20 years after, 1988, when, um, well, as an example, if we think about in LA, the County Sheriff's Department started using composite drawings and video images of a suspect to conduct a database search of digitalised mugshots. So they were one of the first organisations to start doing this. And now, we skip ahead in 2015, Facebook, which we're all familiar with, started rolling out their deep face recognition system that can automatically identify users in any picture that somebody uploads. And they claimed at the time when it was launched that it matches a face with about 97.25% accuracy. So you've gone from a very simple automated system recognising the eyes, ears, nose and mouth up to auto-recognition of a, of a person in any particular picture, in any stance, any background, for example, and close to, what, 97.25. We're getting close to 100% accuracy there. So how does this work? How does biometrics actually work? Well, the features that are most often used in uh, facial scan systems are those least likely to change significantly over time. So the upper ridges of the eye socket, areas around the cheekbones, sides of the mouth, the nose, the shape, the position of the major features relative to one another. And that recognition software is based on the ability to recognise about 80 what are called nodal points on the human face. So very specific uh, markers on the face, about 80 of them in total. Behavioural changes such as the alteration of uh, hairstyle, changes in makeup, growing or shaving facial hair, uh, even just adding or removing eyeglasses are behaviours that can impact the ability of a facial scan system to locate those distinctive features. And facial scan systems are not yet developed to the point where they can overcome those kind of variables. I mean, that, that's how you can kind of throw the system off. But I say throw the system off, if you think about the applications nowadays, so you, we've gone from basic kind of facial identification for eyewitness testimony up to this very high level sophisticated biometric data. I mean, if we think nowadays what they're used for, security, counter-terrorism, even daycare, just for identity verification, residential security, voter verification, banking using ATMs nowadays. I mean, we commonly use it though for security of possessions. And we have our phones that are locked or we, we have to look at a particular camera on the screen to be able to open things up. So there we have some key examples where this biometric data is used, where facial recognition really is at the forefront of that technology. I mean, one of the key aspects of that technology, one of the key selling points really is its ability to recognise these features of the face. So facial recognition is incredibly important, particularly when we're looking at trying to analyse a crime scene. But as I said at the beginning of this podcast, it's, it's so unreliable. The fact that it was implicated in over 75% of convictions that were overturned uh, in Wells and Olson 2003 study shows that, that we've still got a long way to go there. 
but equally bad as eyewitness testimony, I guess, is ear witness testimony. And that I'm going to be addressing in another podcast. Okay, I hope that was interesting. Thank you all for listening.